You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Today we're going to talk about human performance. And I made a commitment to you this year that I was going to tell you ahead of time why you want to listen to an episode so you can decide that this episode is definitely worth your time. And well, I wouldn't put it out there if I didn't think it met the bar, but this is going to be really cool because our expert just wrote a book on things that make you perform better, 25 hidden drivers of performance. And we're going to talk about why developing your attributes, your innate traits might be more important as a, you're more important than skills for getting more out of yourself. In other words, it's not about being good at something. It's about changing your innate abilities, your innate traits in order to do it. You're going to learn about how these attributes can change how you absorb or you process or you respond to the world around you. You might've heard me talking more about your lens on reality or your filter on reality and how it's programmed uh, by things that you don't know programmed it usually earlier in life as your brain was evolving, but also as, uh, as a grown human, um, you get these things that are invisible to you, but they filter out parts of reality. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about mindset, optimism, and stress resilience. This is the first time in recorded history, um, which isn't that long because uh, it's about a, a survey. When you ask people what they want from health, the number one answer for decades has been, I want to lose weight. For the first time ever, thank you, government response uh, to viruses, uh, is that people are now more worried about stress and anxiety than they are about weight loss and just by a couple percentage points. But this is a, a pretty big thing. So you want to be resilient. So when stress comes, like, yeah, I got this. That's what you're going to learn. And we're going to get some examples of the 25 attributes that are in five different categories. So you're going to learn a lot in this show. Our guest is Rich Devinney, and he's someone who's really learned how to do this. He teaches people like the U.S. Navy SEALs how to choose the right people to be in elite performance. And he was in charge of training for a specialized command as part of the SEAL selection process. So this is a guy who knows how to sort out high performers and then how to build them. And he's looking at attributes, not skills. It doesn't matter if you can shoot accurately because you can teach that skill. But if you don't have the attribute to do it, that's the issue. Rich, welcome to The Human Upgrade. Thank you, Dave. It's a real, real pleasure and honor to be here. So thanks for having me. Now, you're not just a part of the selection committee, 20 years of service, by the way, thank you for your service. Oh, absolutely. Uh, 13 overseas deployments, and most of those Afghanistan, Iraq. So you kind of know about life and death, stress, resilience. Yes. How does that translate to the non-military life? Uh, uh, much more easily than one might imagine. <laughs> You kind of know about life and death, stress, resilience. Yes. How does that translate to the non-military life? Uh, uh, much more easily than one might imagine, because as we know, while, um, while what causes us to be afraid and to be stressed is contextual to the individual, uh, those physiological responses that are the results of that stress and fear are identical in every human. And so... And so uh, the, the, the example, which might seem 
funny to hear is that I could be, I or one of my buddies could be in combat in a gunfight in Afghanistan and uh, literally feel less stressed or have less of a physio physiological response going on in our systems than say the uh, the 10 year old at a spelling bee. Um, uh, so, so any types of the reasons why this becomes important and why it's applicable is because those things that we can do inside of stress to deal with it, to deal with our stress, deal with our fear, um, can be cross context. We can do the same, the same things that Navy SEALs use or do, whether consciously or unconsciously are the same things that the 10 year old can do at a spelling bee are the same things that someone can, can do in a workplace or in traffic. And so that's why it becomes very human, not just SEAL. <laughs> do you know what the number one fear of Americans is? I, I don't. It's public speaking. Ah, yes. That's right. Yeah. That's, <laughs> That's the thing that makes most people yeah. lose their mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is which is pretty pretty interesting. I'm guessing you're familiar with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman's work, the book on combat on killing. I, do, I am, yes. Uh, he's been on the show as well, and, and it, it's really interesting uh, what happens, also Mark Devine, uh, when you take the extreme of fear, which is there are people shooting at me and you learn how to be resilient at that and to be able to to operate. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about dropping into your training uh, because you're not going to be able to think when you're you know, truly in operations mode. And I know the first time I gave a big talk to 1,500 people. I was maybe 25, 24. I have no idea what I said because I was pretty much terrified the whole time, yeah. but they laughed and apparently it was a good talk. <laughs> um, this was a room full of like the early, the first generation of what we called webmasters back then. And uh, uh, so at the end of it, I'm like, I have no idea what I said because I was pretty much terrified the whole time. I realized I needed to learn how to do that. My path there was, I'll just become a teacher. So after five years of teaching most nights uh, to a room full of 30 or 50 people, I'm like, I, I'm completely resilient. So I did stress conditioning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you're dealing with, uh, w in a military context, how do you stress condition or do you do some other training so that people don't lose their minds in a situation like that? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting angle um, because really um, there is stress conditioning. The, the Like you said, the the key to be able to do stress conditioning or even fear inoculation is to do repetitive uh, activity inside of that one context. So, uh, so if you want to, if you want to get better, if you want to get over your fear of jumping out of airplanes, cause you have a fear of heights, which I did, uh, all I had to do was jump out of an airplane 50 or 60 times and suddenly I'm feeling a little bit better about it. Right. So, so that inoculation is really, uh, is really helpful. The problem with it is that it, it requires a repetitive activity inside the same context. And as we all know, um, you know, fear, stress, anxiety, uncertainty imply uh, that you it, that imply unpredictability, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so I always used to nickname. I used to, I called the seals uh, when I was in it and when I was training them and all that stuff. I said, uh, "Hey, see, Navy SEALs aren't in fact the, myth the mythological uh, shooters and skydivers and scuba divers that we see on TV and movies. What we actually, in fact, are are masters of uncertainty. We are able to drop into uh, what, what are called VUCA environments, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. It's a military term. Drop into VUCA environments and perform. And I think the, the way we do that is less about mastering certain things and more about understanding how to operate, uh, manage our stress responses and operate our, our mental game so that we may make decisions 
uh, in those environments and decide what to do. And really, the, that decision has to come after we figure out the environment. So the, the first job is, okay, let me figure out what's going on, and now let me decide to do something. And that's really what we start training ourselves to do, but it all starts at basic SEAL training because basic SEAL training, again, nicknamed BUDS, basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training, nine months long, Coronado, California, some of the toughest training in the world. It's all about getting thrown into misery, unpredictability, uncertainty. So you realize that what's going on at an unconscious level is you're, you're hyper-developing this, this ability, and that only gets more intense and uh, applicable in things like combat. It's really cool to use that as as well. They call it a crucible, but but you use it for learning. And what piques my interest in your work, um, and we'll get to your new book called The Attributes in a minute. Here, I want I want to know, and I want to teach people what those attrib- attributes are. But um, you created the first ever mind gym for special operators, and you were tying together uh, things like emotional, mental, and physical all together. Mm-hmm. What made you decide that was an important thing to do for special operators? Yeah, because I recognized I was one of the, and it was a, f- a few of us at the time that recognized that, um, uh, we were pretty good physically. <laughs> I mean, there's only so much, uh, weight you can bench. There's only so, so, so fast you can run the three mile or swim or whatever. Um, and so, so uh, getting better at the physical aspect wasn't necessarily going to get us better at the uncertainty aspect. And so what we recognized was that training our minds to operate better was, in fact, the key. And so we didn't know uh, much about what we were doing. What we did, we just kind of threw, we started researching stuff and throwing some stuff against the wall. We brought in float tanks. We brought, I mean, the first, first, uh, first stab at it was, can we help folks just be more resilient and 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 um, and understand the relationship between their uh, their mental their conscious mental processes and their physiology. In other words, we all know now you can through breathing and and through breathing techniques and through even visual techniques you can actually sh- shift your physiology from sympathetic into parasympathetic. You can start to get into more of a recovery mode. You can start to co- bring yourself off of a of a, or bring yourself down off of uh, an autonomic response. Um, and that's really the key because in stress, uncertainty, and, uh, and fear, uh, to be able to act decisively and appropriately takes conscious logical thought. And what happens when we get that amygdala uh, kick in and we start to approach amygdala overload is our conscious mind begins to go offline. So, so our experimentation was let's start teaching guys to, to manage that better and in fact, because guys at that level were pretty good at it already, can we actually, in fact, get guys into a recovery mode and do what I yes. called uh, uh, recover micro micro recovery, recover in between gunfights? You know, can we do that? And you can do that. You can do that physiologically. So we were just really throwing a bunch of techniques: HRV breathing, float tanks. Um, uh, what else we were using? We were using mental acuity games and things like that, and and just trying to see what what worked. And uh, I don't know. We we didn't do it long enough to see. All right. You know, in teams, in, in any military environment, you, you're you're in charge of something for a short period, then you get moved on. So, <laughs> so whether or not what you started, whether or not that that goes on, is up to the next guy in charge. And I'm not sure where they where they took it. I think they ang- ended up angling a little bit more towards the physical stuff. But it was fun for us, and um, and certainly a cool project. So, are you the guy who brought box breathing 
out as it's kind of a military technique. I've used it on stage and you know, with audiences and all, but it's definitely military derived. That's one of the techniques, you know, five seconds in, hold yeah. for five, breathe out for five kind of a thing. Yeah. Is no, that you? It was not me. I think, uh, I think yeah. it was, uh, from what I understand, it was someone who has almost the same name. It's our mutual friend, Mark Divine. And Mark, oh, and so I, Mark actually was the box breath guy in the military. Okay. So, yeah. I, that's why I, I, that's how I understand it. I mean, I, I first heard of box breathing from Mark. Um, Mark and I, it's funny because our pathways didn't necessarily converge. Uh, he was getting out of the Navy as I was getting in the mid 90s. Yet I always heard uh, his name because like, hey, are you related to Divine? Because my my name is literally spelt with one letter off of his. So, <laughs> so well, but- the, the, it sounds different because mm-hmm. Divini is different than Divine. And when I interview him, I always tease him that he's the only Navy SEAL with a porn star name that I've met yet. So. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, he and I, we, we got to meet finally. I got to do his podcast. We're, we're, we're now we're now connected, which is which is fun. Nice. Um, and he's done great work. But I, I, as I understand it, he was he was certainly the first guy I heard talking about box breathing. What's interesting about the SEAL teams is that everybody assumes that you go to the SEAL teams and they teach you all this fancy stuff. You don't learn any of that stuff. I mean, you might. I should. I should amend that. Maybe nowadays you're learning it. The trainees are learning it. When I went through again in the mid '90s, it was just throw you in the in the soup and see if you could swim. And a lot of our capability and capacity to do these things came about on an unconscious level. So that allowed me later on, years later, when I was doing the mind gym work and of course writing the book, to sit back and say, okay, wait a second, what were we actually doing? How can we actually articulate this in a way? that makes sense because once we do, we can actually start explaining it to people and helping. Uh, I, I really like that. And what I wanted to ask you though, is something that a lot of operators won't really talk about unless they're either really drunk or, um, you know, in a safe space, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about physical, mental, emotional, but I didn't see the word spiritual in there. Yeah. When you do these breathing techniques, you know, when, when a lot of people on the battlefield do have spiritual experiences, they can't explain, but they don't oftentimes talk about them. Did you ever get into that with your guys? Uh, it's a, it's a great question. We, 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 we quite deliberately were careful on how we treaded because, uh, uh, because when you start talking about spiritual, again, it's, it's subjective to the individual, yeah. what, what is spiritual for them. And what you don't want to do is, is turn one person off by, by, by promoting one thing and, and, and you're almost letting people figure out their own spiritual journey. Because again, we know, and you know this because you've talked about it. I mean, the spiritual experience can come from, yes, religion or church. It could also come from surfing. It could come from reading. It can come from yep. from, from doing art. Uh, it could come in some guys, some of these <laughs> just phenomenal warriors. Sometimes they had spiritual experiences in combat. You know, who knows? Yeah. Um, and so we were careful about that. And we kind of, we, instead of saying spiritual, we're really like, okay, what are those things that, that lift you up. Um, and, mm. and, and in some cases, those things that you can get into flow states doing, I think that's where you start to approach that spiritual experience is when you start, you're able to enter into those flow states uh, more frequently, um, whatever that is for you. So, so we were careful how we treaded on the spiritual part um, and let guys try to figure it out. So after you had a lot of experience uh, in operations, you figured out, you know, what's it going to take for us to filter out what makes a good seal? And that's what came up with your book, um, the, the attributes. And by the way, thank you for your, your kind words on my signed copy. My shelf is full of only signed copies. So you're going to be on my shelf. Nice. <laughs> nice. And, um, what are the, the five things that you look for to see if someone can perform at the highest level? So that's a, it's a, it's a, 
it's a bigger question. Uh, so let me just start at the beginning here. I was, uh, when I was running this very specialized ass assessment selection training, what I found was, and this, of course, for the, 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 the course that I was running, we would take some of the best Navy SEALs from across the country and bring them to our own course and put them through our nine month selection course and get about a 50% attrition, which is okay. Every assessment selection attrition is implied. But what was not okay is we, at least when I came to be in charge of it, we had not yet uh, been able to articulate why guys were making it and why guys weren't. And we were coming up with excuses that were pretty lame. Guy couldn't shoot very well, guy couldn't skydive, whatever those things were. And these guys, again, were they were the they were some of the best. And to tell someone, well, you couldn't shoot very well, didn't make sense, didn't make sense to them, didn't make sense to us, didn't make sense to the, the leadership. And so I set about saying, okay, what are we actually looking for and at? And I had to actually think back to my basic SEAL training, again, buds, six months long. In buds, you spend hundreds of hours running around with big, heavy boats on your head. You spend hundreds of hours exercising with 300-pound telephone poles and running around with those things on your shoulders and then freezing in the surf zone. And I thought back and I said, you know, at the time, um, I had conducted hundreds of combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I had done thousands of training evolutions. Um, never on one of those, on any one of those, did I carry a 300-pound telephone pole or a boat on my head, right? So, so what they were doing to us in that time during SEAL training wasn't in effect training us in the skills to be Navy SEALs. They were doing something different. They were looking for these qualities, looking for these attributes that we were displaying. Did we have what it took to become Navy SEALs? And so it, I began to say, okay, there's a difference between skills and attributes and came up with this idea that, hey, these are different things. When we talk about performance, we conflate them. And a lot of times we get seduced by skills and we don't think about attributes. And the reason is very simple. Skills are not inherent to our nature. We're not born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball. They direct our behavior. They tell us when to throw a ball or when to ride a bike and how. Um, and then they're very visible, which means they're very easy to assess, measure, and test. And you can put scores around them and stats around them. You can see how well anybody does any one of these things. This is why we get seduced by them when we're building teams and we're hiring people. Um, you, can put, you can see it on a resume and you can see it on numbers. What they don't tell us is how we're going to show up in stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. Right? This is when we lean on attributes. Attributes are inherent to our nature. We're all born with levels of adaptability and situation awareness and resilience. Now, you can see, um, you, you, you can definitely develop them over time and experience, but you can see levels of this stuff in small children. Right? So there, there's a nature-nurture element. Attributes don't dictate our behavior or direct our behavior. They, it, it, they inform our behavior. So, for example, my son's levels of resilience and perseverance uh, informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike, and he was falling off a dozen times doing so. And then because they're hidden, they're hard to see, which means they're hard to measure and, and assess. You can't sit across the table in an interview process, for example, and assess someone's levels of adaptability or resilience, okay? Uh, they're the most visible when we're in challenge, uncertainty, and stress, which made the environment I had available to me perfect for an, a laboratory because everything about SEAL training, whether it's basic or the stuff I was running, it was about throwing guys into challenge, uncertainty, and stress. So we went about saying, okay, what are those attributes we're looking for? We did it for the SEAL teams. <clears throat> Fast forward five years later, I retire from the SEAL teams. I'm out and about, and I start getting questions from businesses and organizations. Hey, we're putting together these high-performing teams, but a lot of times what's happening is when we put them together, Everything goes great for a little while, but as soon as something happens that throws the team into uncertainty, as soon as things that aren't predicted, the team starts to turn toxic. And I would tell them the same answer. I said, that's happening because you're picking your team based on the wrong things. You're picking them based on skills 
that attribute. So in the book, I talk about this idea of optimal performance <clears throat> and what are those attributes that actually help us perform optimally. Well, you're saying that we're born with attributes. And in the book, you talk about how they, they're informing your behavior, but not telling you exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what you'll default. And I, I actually use a, a test uh, with all of my employees um, that helps, like, what kind of decision maker are you? And these are also attribute kind of tests. And the thing is, there's no positive or negative there. It, it's just, okay, like, do you want more information or less information to make a decision? Right. Different roles, that's more or less useful. And if you know that that's an attribute and you're in a role that requires something else, then you can go on to learn behaviors. Yeah. But you're saying in the book, though, that you can actually modify your attributes. And I find that really interesting. Yeah. So let's say that I'm not a highly resilient personality at birth um, for whatever reason. How would I go about changing my attributes? How would I go about changing my attributes? Yeah, um, you can you could definitely develop attributes. You just can't do it the same way as a skill. So just a quick, um, for the audience, a quick uh, back of the envelope test to determine whether or not it's a skill or an attribute. Um, and it's simply to ask this question, can I teach it or can it be taught? If the answer is yes, it's probably a skill, okay? If the answer is no, it's probably an attribute. So the, the example would be, Dave, you say, Hey, Rich, I want to go learn how to shoot a pistol and hit a bullseye every time, okay? I could take you out to, out to a range and, and teach you how to do that within a couple hours, okay? That is a skill. Or you say, hey, Rich, I want to learn how to be more adaptable or more resilient. I can't teach you that. <laughs> so, so developing an attribute takes three things. It takes self-motivation. You have to want to do it. Self-direction, you have to set out to do it. And then it takes a, a willingness for that individual to deliberately find environments inside of which they can test and tease that attribute, and they will be uncomfortable, okay? So you have to find uncomfortable environments inside of which you can test and tease and develop that attribute. So so patience is a great example because you could say, well, if I want to become more patient, I need to go find environments that test and tease my patience, whatever that looks like for you. I say, I mean, it could be I'm going to deliberately drive in traffic. I'm going to go stand in the longest line at the grocery store. I say having kids, that'll <laughs> that'll develop your patience, Right. Um, resilience yeah. is resilience is the same way. If I want to develop my resilience, you must then go find environments that test and tease. In other words, knock you off your baseline so that you can practice getting back to baseline. Um, that's the only way to do it. But if you do that, you can start to develop attributes and get higher on some of those ones you're a little bit lower on. And just a quick caveat: we all of us have all of the attributes. The levels. The, the only difference in us are the levels to which we have each. So, so for example, we take adaptability and 10 is high and one is low. I have probably at level eight on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around me outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and roll with it. Okay. I'm, I'm more adaptable. Um, someone else might be a level three, which means the same things happens to them. It's difficult for them to go with the flow. They're still adaptable because human beings are, but it's just difficult. There's more friction there. And so it's really about understanding first where we stand on these attributes, where all of our dimmer switches line up, and then asking ourselves, okay, based on my scores, because again, there's no judgment there, and it's not about having a lot of all of them. That's impossible. And it's also not contextual, right? It's about understanding where I think I need to improve each attribute I might want to improve, because again, having too much of one attribute may in fact be detrimental to what you want to do, okay? So I always joke, like the stand-up comic doesn't need a lot of empathy 
because too much empathy might interrupt that stand-up comic's ability to find the funny at a funeral, right? So, so too much of something may interrupt what you actually want to do. So it's really about what do I have and where in, in terms of the context of the niche inside of which I want to succeed or excel, what are those one or two things I want to develop? I kind of believe that resilience is a teachable skill, not necessarily an attribute, but the way we teach it is so different than, um, than the way we would teach, you know, a pistol learning skill. The way that, that I teach it is with neurofeedback, right? Mm -hmm. You put electrodes on someone's brain and you show the brain, the skill of organizing in a more resilient way where essentially different parts of the brain fire in different ways. So it feels like it's teachable or at least it's trainable. Yeah. Versus teachable. And I guess you're saying the difference between teaching and training there is you can train someone to be more resilient through these kind of exposures. Is, yeah, is there I think it, I think it, it has to do with it has to do with whether or not the individual being taught is a willing participant or unwilling participant. I mean, the example would be this. Um, someone who uses the computer over and over again is eventually going to learn how to type whether they like it or not. That's a skill. Right. Um, but you can, if you set about to teach someone resilience, if they don't want to be more resilient, if there's not a self-motivation to do it, yeah. self-direction, it's not going to happen. Someone who doesn't want to be more patient, it's not going to happen. So, so there has to be a choice for someone to develop. And I agree with you. I think especially with what we're, what we're discovering, the, the leaps we're making in neuro, uh, neuroscience and neurofeedback and everything we're seeing about the brain, um, we can break some of this down and say, hey, this is what's happening, this, this, and this. And so... So once you do that, you can say you can start saying, okay, I can actually help you train and develop your resilience or whatever attribute is by showing you some steps that you can take to do that. And so you can kind of break it down into that, I think. That's, uh, that's really cool. I, I've never thought about this before, but that difference between uh, teaching and training um, where there, there's something going on there. And I know resilience is one of the biggest things that I hear from people who do the 40 years of Zen, my like five-day intensive neurofeedback program, where stuff that would have taken you out, it would have just taken you completely off your game, it just doesn't feel like it's big anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing after you, you go through carrying a 300-pound telephone pole around for a while, you're like, well, if I can handle that and some cold water, you know, the fact that someone cut me off in traffic just isn't a big deal. Right. Right. Well, and I think it's um, so it's definitely contextual. Uh, I believe just like you do that the resilience is a muscle that can be trained. Um, and I think the more you do it, one of the things I talk about in the book and I talk about resilience as an attribute is I, I tell the story of one of my um, commanding officers who used to tell us what his grandfather told him. He called it the two minute rule. And the two minute rule went like um, when anything bad happens or, or, you know, or something that you're upset about, go ahead and take two minutes and kick the dirt you know, feel, feel sorry for yourself, wallow. But to, after 120 seconds, deliberately go back to baseline and start getting on with it. Um, and then the same thing with any good habits because resilience goes both ways. You, if, you, if you don't, if you're, if you're unable to come down off of the, the high stuff as well, you may get complacent you may, and you may get thrown off track. So anything good happens, take two minutes and celebrate, rest on your laurels, you know, pat yourself on the back. And then after 120 seconds, get back to baseline. And so what that's, what that allows someone to do is basically practice resilience, but with the little tragedies. Because again, there's trauma, there's things that happen to us that take a lot more than two minutes to get over. But you can use this for just the little stuff, the spat at work, um, the traffic you got stuck in, the spilled milk. Use the two-minute rule to practice some resilience, and you start to exercise the muscle 
so that when you get to the bigger stuff, you you understand the steps that you need to take. Um, and then, of course, there is context, right? Yes, if you go through some heavy, heavy trauma, whatever that looks like, it could be SEAL training, it could be it could be a, a disease, it could be a, a divorce <laughs> or a layoff. Um, your ability to get through that um, is going to inform your optic and perception perception on everything else that happens. And if you're able to, in a moment, say, "I mean, come on, this is I mean, this is not going to set up. This is this is nothing compared to." that helps you be resilient. And I think that a lot of military members find that. I know my wife and I do. I mean, we are so appreciative of each other. We've been married for over 20 years now. Um, we're so appreciative of each other because we had to leave each other so often. Um, and so you experience these these uh, these outliers in terms of emotions and, and, and experiences, and you just, it helps you really uh, appreciate um, and look at things as not a big deal. Um, so you're, it's kind of your lens, something that would have felt big isn't big anymore because you've been through the training. Well, there, there's five attributes though from the book. Um, can you just list the five that you're yeah. looking for? I think that would be useful and then we'll talk about those. Yeah, it's actually five categories of attributes. There's 25 right, sorry, attributes yeah. total, uh, five categories. And these categories actually came up while I was writing. I, didn't, I hadn't planned on them. It's just as I wrote, uh, they seemed to bin nicely into these categories, which was nice. Um, the first category is grit, because a lot of people think of grit as its own attribute. But grit, in fact, is not a singular thing. Grit is a combination of things kind of blended and stewed together to create the result that is grit. Um, the four attributes that make up grit are courage, adaptability, perseverance, and resilience. We, we can talk about those as we go. And again, I, the way I've described grit would be your ability to kind of push through and and um, and persevere and kind of get through those short-term challenges and endeavors, kind of the short-term grind-it-out type stuff. Then there's mental acuity. Mental acuity attributes are the way our brain processes the world, okay? So, so how do we take in information, our situational awareness? How do we take that information and prioritize it and, and focus on what we need to focus on? compartmentalization. How do we switch between focus points, which again is task switching. We know um, multitasking is a myth. You know, we don't multitask. We don't, we can't really pay attention to more than one thing at a time, um, which is funny because people say, well, Rich, I'm, you know, I'm listening to this podcast and driving, but it doesn't count if we've relegated that other activity to our unconscious mind. We can do that because we don't have to think about driving. As soon as someone swerves in front of us and we have to take evasive action, we will have to have, we will have to rewind that last 15 seconds of the podcast because our brain will have will have task switched um and then learnability how able how faster and 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 how able are we to metabolize things coming into our system and, and use them again um third category is drive so if grit would speak to kind of those short-term endeavors drive speaks to the long term what makes up what are the attributes that make up the driven person those long-term endeavors and goals those are um uh self-efficacy uh, open-mindedness, discipline, and then cunning, which is a little bit pejorative, and then narcissism, which is very pejorative, but we could talk about that if we want to. Um, and then the third, uh, the fourth category is leadership. What are the attributes that make up a great leader? And again, think about leadership that we have to understand is leadership and being a leader is different than being in charge. One is a noun and one is a verb. And while you can self-designate being in charge, you can't self-designate as a leader. You can't call yourself a leader. That's like calling yourself good-looking or funny. Other people decide whether or not you are someone they want to follow, and they do so based on behaviors that stem from these attributes. Those attributes are empathy, selflessness, authenticity, decisiveness, and accountability. Those behaviors tend to create 
or allow for people to say that is someone I want to follow. That is someone I look at as a leader versus just being in charge. And of course, team ability, uh, I, the word team ability, I don't know where it came from. I stole it from the, from the teams. Um, but it means the ability to kind of operate and work on a team with other people. Again, you don't get to call yourself a great teammate. Other people decide whether or not you're a great teammate based on your behaviors, based on these attributes. Those attributes are integrity, conscientiousness, humility, and humor. Um, and then we have some, I, I talk about in the book, some others that don't really necessarily been into those categories, which we can kind of get into, but those are competitiveness and non-competitiveness, patience and impatience. And then of course, fear of rejection versus I don't care what other people think. So, so that's kind of what I talk about in the book. There's more attributes than just 25, of course, but those are the ones I kind of outlined for, for optimal performance. Well, one of the reasons I write books is it forces me to structure my knowledge for myself. Yeah. And of course, when you write the book, it's like, oh, the process of writing it illuminates a lot of things and it makes the book more readable, more teachable, uh, but then it also informs how you do things. Yeah. So you have these these five things. Now, if you were to, to say on a scale of one to 10, 10 is high and one is low, where would you rate yourself with all the training you've been through on, on those five? Give yourself a one to 10 score. Oh gosh! Well, I'd have to go per, per attribute, and and it it. Um, you can't go I'm, per category. You can't sum them all up for. Well, the category. okay. Well, let's see. Okay, I'll I'll I won't dodge the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a nice try, though. <laughs> I would. Yeah, I would say I would say I'm 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 pretty high on the grid attributes. I think I think pretty much anybody who makes it through SEAL stuff yeah. is. Um. So so maybe an eight or nine. I'd say uh, definitely high on the learn on the mental acuity attributes, and I would say that's really a very distinguishing factor between Navy SEALs especially at the highest levels of the Navy SEAL teams, things like hostage rescue and things, you have to be very high on mental acuity, all of those, all four of those. Um, the drive attributes I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at uh, because, uh, you know, I've been able to achieve some goals. I would say you get into that. I think things like narcissism, you have to be, there has to be a balance there. You have to, there's a, there's a healthy way to metabolize narcissism, um, healthy way to metabolize cunning. On the leadership attributes and the team ability attributes, interestingly enough, I can't decide. Um, uh, I can't tell you. It, it'd be it'd be wrong for me to tell you. Oh, I'm a great leader. I'm high on all those. It's really <laughs> it's really about uh, those other those other guys and people I, I've served with, um, and whether or not they think I'm a great leader. And I will tell you, there are a lot of people who've come back to me and said, "Hey, Rich, I loved serving with you, and I love serving under your command. I love serving with you as a teammate." I'm sure there's a bunch of other people who are like, "Yeah, I didn't like that guy at all," <laughs> right? So it's it's up to them, really. So. I think so, when it comes to those attributes, it's really about endeavoring to behave in those ways so that you may hopefully be designated or decided upon as a, as a leader or a great teammate. So a great leader won't actually say they're a great leader. I would say <laughs> if someone, if someone tells you I'm a great leader or if someone says I am your leader, run the other direction because <laughs> they're probably a narcissist. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, in fact, I'm thinking about writing a book about narcissism given some of the stuff I've experienced over the last couple of years in business. I'm like, yeah. wow, it's amazing how toxic that is just in yeah. society uh, and organizations. And it only yeah. takes a couple of narcissists to just break a break an effective team. Oh, it, it's, it's toxic. And so, so it probably behoove us to just get into narcissism because people are like, well, why the heck is it an attribute? And the reason why is because when I started thinking about the drive attributes and what, what makes up the driven person, I actually had to do some, well, it's funny, you, you probably agree with this. Part of writing a book is also a lot of soul searching and self-reflection. Yeah. Um, which I had to do for myself. And one of the things I asked myself, and I ended up asking a bunch of other my team guy friends, why the heck did I become a Navy SEAL in the first place? Okay, and I used to, and, I, and the answer is is 
usually one main thing. And if people think it's because it's a uh, because I'm a patriot or because that's wrong, that's it's true. I am a patriot, but most of us because we wanted to be badasses, right? You're 20, yeah. you're between 18 <laughs> and 22 years old. You want to try something that no, that very few people can do. You want to be a badass James Bond type guy. Um, that's a hint of narcissism. And and when you look at narcissism as a definition, not not the disorder, okay, because that's bad. Yeah. Narcissism as definition means um, uh, a a desire to stand out, be recognized, be adored. Okay. Now, I dug into this, and there's there's neurobiology that's associated with this. Okay. When we're infants, getting paid attention to and adored. Okay. We're getting we're getting juiced with some neurobiology. We're getting dopamine feels good. We're getting serotonin. We're getting oxytocin. All three chemicals feel good. Chemicals, bonding and binding chemicals. Doesn't change when we're adults, okay? <laughs> when we're being adored and recognized, we're getting those same chemicals. It feels good. Not, I mean, every single human being at some point in their lives wants to be adored and, and recognized and stand out a little bit, right? So, so narcissism properly metabolized is often the impetus to some very audacious goals. I mean, why else would someone want to be a Navy SEAL? Why else would someone want to be a top podcaster or a top business person or a top surgeon or, a, or a, an actor or a singer? There's a little bit of narcissism in there, and it's okay. Uh, the key to narcissism is to not be disordered, okay? And again, the, the DSM-5 will, will tell you what a narcissistic personality disorder looks like. That's bad. Um, the key to metabolizing it in a healthy way is to look at the people you surround yourself with, all right? Because true, like, like malignant narcissists will surround themselves with yes-men and sycophants. Um, and those people who only put them on a pedestal, only tell them what they want to hear, um, oftentimes those groups are transitory. So in other words, if someone, if someone, because uh, it's hard to be a sycophant for too long, someone removes yeah. themselves from that group. That narcissist then that 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 narcissism makes that person public enemy number one, right? That becomes public enemy number one. Number one. Those people who can metabolize it in healthy ways have surrounded themselves with people who they trust, they love. They tell them the, the things that they need to hear. They tell them the hard truths. They don't put them on the pedestal all the time. They are just one of the one of the group. Um, and you can see it. You can see even if you take Hollywood, which people would argue is one of the most narcissistic communities out there. Okay. The, the the healthiest Hollywood actors or actresses, those people in that in that community, are the ones who talk about how their families are their grounding their grounding marks. When they're when they're with their families, they're they're no one special. Everything's about they're just regular. They 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 they, they don't surround themselves with sycophants, right? So so all of this to say, metabolize narcissism in a healthy way to set those audacious goals to, to, to make it that driver, that accelerant, but surround yourself with trusted people so that you keep it in check. Uh, so they, they help you to keep your ego in check. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Scott Barry Kaufman came on the show, who's a psychiatrist or psychologist, and we talked about narcissism quite a bit, and, and it becomes malignant or toxic when it, it comes with a, I deserve because mm. I'm great versus I earned it because I want to be great. So the healthy narcissism would say that desire to be great uh, versus, uh, you know, well, I'm, I'm a seal, therefore I deserve versus right. I'm a seal, therefore I earn every day kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. I love that. And my wife and I say that all the time. We hate that word, that term, I deserve. Can't stand oh, it. I mean, it's, it's just, 
it's entitlement, deserving, oh, no, none yeah. of that. That's not real. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And so, uh, so it's really. I, I always say I'm always. I always try to be grateful and a little dissatisfied. That's what I try to be, <laughs> because that keeps me, that keeps me rolling. That keeps me kind of <laughs> yeah, reaching for that next uh, that next um, handhold and foothold to climb a little higher. So I, I love that man. Grateful and a little dissatisfied. Yeah. So, so we're we're in the the drive attributes here, and you had we talked about narcissism here. You also talk about open-mindedness, but you pair it with discipline, uh, which is kind of an odd pairing for this category. So talk to me about open-mindedness and why that's an important attribute. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Yeah. So, so we're, we're in the, the drive attributes here, and you had we talked about narcissism here. You also talk about open-mindedness, but you pair it with discipline, uh, which is kind of an odd pairing for this category. So talk to me about open-mindedness and why that's an important attribute. Well, in the, in the, drive, uh, in the drive category, um, we're talking about the ability to set, achieve, uh, set and, and, um, and pursue and achieve long-term goals. To do that is going to take... Um, an ability to understand that these types of goals um, are that the, the outside world has a say in whether or not you achieve them or not. <laughs> they really do. Um, and so open mindedness is going to require because 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 the closed mind is the is the is the mind that says I'm done. I got nothing else to learn. Right. So open mindedness is really this assumption and this this philosophy, this mentality that I always have something to learn and I'm open to suggestion. I'm open to new ideas. I'm open to things that come at me. Um, discipline, a little bit different. Discipline, I, I actually separate discipline in the book um, between discipline and then self-discipline because they're actually two different things. The discipline in the drive category is a discipline in terms of, again, those, those long-term goals that the outside world has a say in whether or not you accomplish. Self-discipline uh, speaks to those goals that the outside world doesn't really have a say in whether or not you accomplish. So, the example would be I want to get I want to eat healthy and I want to work out and I want to get in shape, okay? I could decide that right now and the outside world really doesn't have a say in whether or not I accomplish that. I, because I could decide that and I could find myself in Vegas at a buffet, the buffet is not going to throw pastries at me, okay? It's up to me whether or not I do that. So the outside world does not have a say. That's where self-discipline comes in really handy. Discipline on the other hand are those those goals that the outside world does have a say, right? I want to be a Navy SEAL. I want to be a podcaster. I want to be a uh, 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 a surgeon, okay? The world has a say in whether or not you accomplish that. In other words, the world is going to throw things at you that you must navigate and move around. 
and 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 uh, and and accomplish and conquer the, to to achieve the goal. So so that 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 separation is interesting to me because I really again in self reflecting I had to say okay there are people who I know who are highly highly self disciplined okay but they actually haven't accomplished anything in their lives right. So they're low on discipline. There are other people who are highly, highly disciplined. They've accomplished a ton, but they don't have a lot of self-discipline, right? And then there's the, right. the sweet spot, which is both, okay? Um, and, um, and so those, so discipline overall needs to be looked at that way. What are those, what is your capacity to set, pursue, and achieve long-term goals that the external world has a say in whether or not you do? What about cunning? That, that's typically a, perceived as a negative thing, but you have a different take on it in your book. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, um, I went through a little debate mentally as to whether or not to put cunning or creativity. And what I realized uh, when it comes to drive and achieving long-term goals is that, is that one, when we talk about cunning and creativity, one is passive and one is a little bit more proactive. Uh, and one has to do with solving problems and one doesn't, right? So creativity is I think of new ideas. Okay. There's, there's just, I just have a mind that thinks of new ideas. Cunning, cunning has to have a problem involved. There's some sort of problem that you're trying to solve when it comes to cunning. And so cunning is almost a, it's, it's kind of a proactive form of creativity, but it also involves looking outside the perceived boundaries and, and, and restrictions. So, so that what the cunning mind does is the cunning mind looks at a problem and, for, and asks a couple of questions and says, okay, what are the what are the boundaries and restrictions that are that are around this problem? Okay, are they perceived or are they real? Okay, because that's going to separate them. And if they are real, what happens if I break them? <laughs> that's what the cunning mind does. And so the cunning mind is typically it's almost I mean in a very cliche way it's it's thinking outside the box. That's what the cunning mind does. And so I would say like one of the one of the most I guess predominant qualities in Navy SEALs is cunning because that's what special operations was designed to do. Special operations originally was, were designed to think about ways to agitate, frustrate, uh, uh, defeat the enemy that other people hadn't thought about. How do we go around the, uh, the, the problem? How do we do things in a way that no one thought about? And that, yeah. or that cunning is required. It, it's the creative problem solving versus, <clears throat> uh, versus, oh, I'm going to paint, right? Painting is right. awesome, totally, right? But it, it isn't yeah. necessarily... I, but I would, I, say, a, I would add to that. It was the, it's yeah. a creative problem solving that in some cases eschews the rules, right? Um, Absolutely. So you're yeah. doing it in a way that you didn't think about. That's right. I love that you use the word cunning. I think that that's the right word rather than creativity because creativity is such a, it's a soft word. And this isn't a soft side of creativity. This is the hard side of creativity. It is. It is. And, and in, in the book, I actually use an example. It's a, it's a fantasy example, but I, I talk about, okay, imagine there's the, uh, there's the princess, the king has a princess. The princess is in a tower somewhere, and the tower is guarded by a dragon. And the king wants to save the princess, so he sends night after night to go save this princess, to you know, slay the dragon, save the princess. And uh, every every time he sends one, the knight gets incinerated by the dragon. Well, suddenly the Navy SEAL, the special operator, shows up, and the king says, hey, I want you to go save the princess. And the special, special operator says, okay, what's the mission here? And it says, save the princess. Well, who gives a crap about the dragon, right? then the spec operator is going to start to think about a way to get to the princess by bypassing the dragon altogether, right? Because right. the dragon, slay the dragon, save the princess is not the mission. The mission is save the princess. And so, so the cunning mind starts to organize ways to go around the dragon altogether because the dragon has no, has no bearing on the, 
on the overall objective. And so, so this is why cunning is so important. And I think especially important in the driven person. It, it's funny, um, going back to Iraq, uh, one of Saddam Hussein's biggest vaults, um, his troops had tried to loot it and they'd shot artillery shells at the doors and just, you know, really threw everything they had, they couldn't get in. Mm-hmm. And had they taken half the artillery power and shot at the wall instead of the door, That's right. <laughs> they could have got right in. That's right. And it's, it's that whole idea of just thinking outside what you're supposed to do. Like the door yeah. have to go through the door. And so, but this is an attribute and can you teach cunning? Is it trainable? Like, like how, how would you make someone more cunning? Yeah. Well, I think, I think, I think you can develop it. Sure. I think we can develop anything, but, but the fact that it does imply some creativity, it does imply some, um, some looking outside the rules. It's, I don't know if you can teach it. I mean, I just like you, I, I think, um, I think I, I do think that once you dissect it, there are probably elements of cunning that you could help make visible to someone who wanted to, uh, to improve their cunning. Um, but I, you know, the way I would say anybody who wants to kind of practice or think about cunning, just, when you're when you when you are approached by or approach a problem, the first question you should ask is, okay, what are the rules and conditions and boundaries around this problem, and are they real or are they perceived? And then if they're if they're perceived, then I don't have to worry about them. If they're real, what happens if I break them? What are some other ways we can think about this? Um, I think those are some of the first steps in developing cunning. Um, I just think some minds. <laughs> they just think that way a lot more automatically than other minds. So, um, so if you're on a team and you need more cunning, uh, that's where you start to build teams effectively. If you don't find you're very high on cunning, find someone who's high on cunning for your team so that you have someone you can lean on. Well, and I will add to that. Sometimes um, the cunning mind, the, the naturally cunning mind, will almost always be looking for ways around, whereas sometimes the right solution is to go right up the line. You know, so you need so having a team with both. Yeah. Um, is important because because uh, sometimes it's like hey no no we don't need to overthink this just go straight up the <laughs> straight yeah, up the middle we'll be fine let's right? kill the so, dragon and be done with it kind <laughs> kill of guys. The dragon. we have we have the weapon just kill the dragon and be done with it yep so. right uh, yeah so sometimes the pursuit of the elegant cunning approach is not is counterproductive and, and I right. always right. say I'm guilty of that sometimes um, all right. I want to switch gears a bit and talk about mental acuity. And I've spent a lot of my life developing that, uh, working on that. I have a, a company uh, dedicated to that. How do you, like, what are the sub attributes, the five sub attributes for mental acuity? You mentioned them earlier, or at least some mm-hmm. of them, but uh, talk to me about what those five are. Yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're four of them, and they're out of oh, all four. the categories, they're, they're the one category that's our these four are completely intertwined. Um, and, and in some cases, they're kind of in order. Um, and the reason is kind of a process. It's a mental process. So, so it starts with situation awareness, our levels of situation awareness, which means how much are we noticing about our environment? Uh, you could also call it vigilance. But we know that some people are just higher naturally on situation awareness. They're just higher, they just have more vigilance. And some people are the people who just walk around New York City and they're in la-la land, Right. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just how you how you how you show up. Um, obviously, in my profession, vigilance is something that we are naturally pretty good at. And in some cases, when we go to war, we become hyper vigilant, which actually can be unhealthy to a degree. So, so again, the other note on this: too much or too little of any of these attributes can be detrimental. You want to actually find a sweet spot. So that situation where it's your level of vigilance, how much information are you letting in um, <laughs> from all your five senses and noticing? 
you know, again, I'm the guy who walks around New York City and I notice the dark alleyways. I notice the, I notice people's hands and what they, and I notice cars coming, you know, I just, I noticed a ton of stuff. Once you do that, you enter into compartmentalization. And compartmentalization is the ability to take the information that's coming in and basically uh, assess the relevance. Okay, what about this information is important to me in the context of what I'm trying to do in this moment? Prioritize that list. Okay, out of that, what's the most important? And then focus in on what you need to focus on. That's compartmentalization. And in that focusing, kind of uh, haze out. I won't say fully block out, but haze out everything else that's a distraction. Um, compartmentalization is the single most, if I were to pick one, is the single most important attribute for someone to become a Navy SEAL, right? Because every, almost everything about what you do, you have to focus, you have to block out everything that doesn't matter and focus in on what does. And this is what training, which this is what Bud's training does. I mean, it's so miserable that all you can do is focus on the now and focus on what you want to focus. And you kind of, you shift those horizons as you, as you go through it. But I just remember freezing in the surf zone, for example, and that's when most people quit. You're freezing the surf zone. I remember, oh, man, this is miserable. Um, but you know what? Soon I'll be doing so many push-ups that I'm, I'm really hot, right? And that's what I focus <laughs> on, right? And then I'd be doing so many push-ups that I'm really hot. It's like, well, soon I'll be in the, in the surf zone freezing, okay? You know, so we talk about you know, always just, just making it to the next meal or making it to whatever, what next evolution. That's compartmentalization at its finest. And it's very, very applicable in combat environments as well. But holistically as humans that's what our brain does our brain is compartmentalizing what am i going to focus on block out everything else maintaining a soft awareness because this is where situation awareness gets intertwined so that if what you're focusing on suddenly doesn't it, it shifts in priority it goes down in priority you can actually un, you can enter into the you can focus on the new priority okay um that's that's how this is kind of done masterfully and you can task switch those focus points, okay? Um, so this is where task switching comes in. How effectively and efficiently can I shift between contexts and categories? And again, we know our brains, you know, we, we basically catalog everything in our brains as we see something. We say, okay, this is, a, this is a cup. It looks like it has a handle. It looks like a coffee mug. It's a coffee mug, right? Um, we do this all the time. We create categories and contexts inside of which, inside of different environments. So, so an example would be the, um, the context is driving the category is driving my car okay that's and, and then and then when i park my car i'm going into a different context which is walking through the parking lot and then i'm going to a different context when i enter into the target uh store or whatever it is um our brain switches between this stuff and and it's it's doing it's doing that constantly um there are people who are very very good at task switching all right these are these are what we would typically call multitaskers they're actually and there's actually a they're I talk about the book, there's like a 2%, 2% of people are what they call hyper, I think super or hyper taskers. Um, and it, they, they seem to, based on study, when, when they're studied, they seem to be able to handle a bunch of different tasks at the same time and actually get better while doing so. But in fact, what they're realizing is they're not actually multitasking, they're just task switching very, very rapidly and very efficiently. Um, other people are actually bad at task switching. In other words, when they get when they're in focus on something and they get shifted from focus, it's hard for them to. <laughs> to it, it's get, a speed and efficiency of task switching, and if you're really good at that, it doesn't cost you anything. But for most of us, there's some degree of you know I had to reset something, mm -hmm. and it took a lot of energy or time to do it. Yeah, um, yeah. I I get that. So the Navy SEALs are good at task switching. They and are. Yeah. Situational awareness is is really interesting. Um, when I was doing that, you know, rapid immersion into uh, the world of spies, 
uh, I talked to the operators and they had this like hyper awareness of everything around them. And so for about oh, three or four months, I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to see if I can do that. Mm-hmm. And what I found was it took huge amounts of energy and the return wasn't very high because frankly, there's no one really hunting me right now. That's right. That's right? right. So I, I think it improved things. And because I was hypervigilant, probably because of PTSD, I had a real problem with it even before that, where I didn't know this, but I was so hypervigilant, I had kind of a tunnel vision. And I mm-hmm. learned to just ignore my peripheral vision entirely because it wasn't that relevant. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I went through really difficult vision training, just exhausting for the brain for about three months to increase my peripheral awareness. So I'm taking in way more info than I did, but it was about changing the bandwidth of my brain. Yeah. So I, I think these are trainable, but the kind of training to do that is, it's, it's odd and it's it's kind of counterintuitive. But well, and, and it's and it's like you said, it, it can be dangerous. I, a lot of I would say I would say all, but a lot of the seeds of PTSD of soldiers coming home with PTSD is due to hypervigilance. In yeah. other words. I remember you come you're, when you're overseas. I mean, everything about your environment is a threat. So you're you're hyper vigilant all the time, and you're just you're wired that way for three months, four months, six months, whatever it is. Then you come home, right? And you're still wired that way, which means now you're walking around, you're looking at, you know, vehicles, you're looking underneath vehicles, you're looking at door handles, you're looking at hands because that's where people have weapons, and you're realizing actually there's nothing there, there's no threat. But that hyper vigilance is 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 super exhausting. Um, it takes yeah. a lot of uh, uh, mental energy, um, and it can be detrimental. This is PTSD. Parts of PTSD is because people can't turn that off. They can't just relax in the moment. I mean, I, I have to sometimes, well, I had to, especially when I was in New York after coming back from, you know, um, uh, overseas, I had to say, okay, I just have to accept, okay, that the person five feet walking behind me is not a threat. I don't have to constantly understand or be aware as to what they are right i mean i I can i can let certain things go um but you're right it's exhausting and it's not applicable fortunately for us in the first world environment we're in uh you start going to um you know some of the more dangerous spots on the planet you're going to want to up your vigilance Uh, i definitely have experienced that and when i'm when i was traveling in remote parts of asia where i i know that there's people who will gladly steal all my stuff Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm pretty fortunate and, and you are too, just because criminals can usually smell someone who knows how to take care of themselves. Yeah. In my case, I'm really big. So I'll add into that because of, because of your, your situation awareness and your vigilance, you, you see things and notice things yeah. three steps before they happen. So you can see you're, 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 you're saying, okay, wait a second, that up there doesn't look right. So I'm actually going to cross the street. So you actually you're almost in some cases unconsciously avoiding what would have happened anyway because you're seeing things three steps. The people who are just in La La Land, they just walk into surprises all the time because they're just not, they're not anticipating steps through their vigilance. Yep, and that's, that's something that I work on, you know, on teaching my kids. You know, we, we live in a forest, you know, on a farm, and oh, is the ram going to headbutt you? Mm-hmm. you know, that, that actually isn't a very useful city skill. <laughs> so whenever we go to a city, I'm like, pay attention to where you're walking, you know, all this yeah. stuff just so that they know what environmental inputs are actually important. Yeah, because the Dodge Ram will hit you. In the city. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Very yeah. well said. Now, the, the most, probably my favorite attribute in the whole book that you talk about is learnability, which is part of the mental acuity awareness. Talk to me about learnability. What is that? 
Yeah, learnability is the, the ability to process and metabolize all this stuff in a way that you can then learn and integrate it into your operating system. Um, now, the, way, the best way to describe that is those who are high on learnability, like especially really high on learnability, are those people who tend to see something or be shown something once and they got it, right? Versus someone who's lower on learnability. And admittedly, I will, I will admit that I'm, out of all those mental acuity ones, I'm lower on learnability. And what that meant for me was I was the guy, whereas there were some guys when I was going through training who, you know, you do a day of training and they're like, okay, they go drinking, right, afterwards. And I'd have, I'd, I'd have to stay back and I'd have to look at my materials. I'd have to walk through the scenarios. I'd have to visualize because I made the same mistakes a couple times before I picked it up. Um, it just, it, it took a little bit more for me to metabolize that stuff. So, so people who are high on learnability tend to metabolize lessons and learn stuff faster. Um, and if you're a little bit lower, that's okay too. Just know it's going to be a little bit more work to do so. so. So let's say that someone wants to increase some some group of those attributes under mental acuity. Mm-hmm. What would you do? Okay, I want more mental acuity. What's yeah. step one? Step one, well, you have to take each attribute and say, okay, situa- I want to be more vigilant and situation aware. Okay, you just have to, you now have to consciously make a choice to notice more things, kind of like you made that choice. Uh, and you have to start to understand, okay, how... Can I, can I practice noticing things? Now, first thing you have to do is turn off all those distractions that are taking away your, your focus, right? I.e., the cell phone, you know, because that is a thousand different contexts and categories that are vying for your attention. And we all know, even if it's on vibrate and you feel the vibration on, in your pocket or whatever, your brain is still, is still switching, right? So, so eliminate those distractions that are going to pull you away and then just start noticing stuff, right? That's, that's, um, uh, that's situational awareness, uh, awareness. Compartmentalization is to co- start to consciously say, okay, in the context of what I'm trying to do, what are those things that I'm noticing that are relevant to my situation? And then how would I prioritize those things? You know, um, I give an example in the book about kind of running through the airport trying to find your gate, right? And you're just saying, okay, what am I, out of everything I'm seeing out here, I'm seeing a Chili's, I'm seeing a bathroom, I'm seeing a, a, a coffee shop, I'm seeing uh, the gate signs, I'm seeing the the, the, the monitors, what about all that stuff are relevant to what I'm trying to do? I say, well, the coffee shop, the chilies, and the bathroom are not relevant. It's more the monitors and the gate signs, okay? Out of those, what's my priority? Well, if I'm running for my gate, well, I need to focus on the great gate signs. That's my priority. That conscious process uh, is something that can be uh, thought through and I think practiced. You can start practicing compartmentalization. Yeah. And you can start saying, okay, now once I'm focused in on that, I'm going to maintain focus. I'm not going to let myself be distracted. I maintain focus until either, either it's complete or something shifts in that's higher priority, right? So, so for example, I'm running for gate 13A, okay, and I've, I've decided to focus on finding 13A. I maintain a little bit of situation awareness, and I hear that my flight has shifted to gate 11B, okay? Suddenly, my priorities have changed. 13A is not my priority 11B is now my priority. So that's how you, you practice that. Um, task switching, I don't know if I can, uh, <laughs> if I can, um, if I can give too many recommendations other than to say that most of us task switch too much already and we do it inadvertently. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to hound on the, on the cell phones. Um, even though they provide a lot of cool stuff in our lives, we have now given ourselves thousands of distractions that is that is shifting our attention and those are very energy expended uh they're they're high energy shifts um task switching is a high energy um uh, activity 
Um, and this is exactly why, by the way, when we all uh, were quarantined for the first time, you know, people were you know, in their homes and it felt exhausted even after it's like, I didn't do anything today, but I feel exhausted. And the reason is because prior to being quarantined, we had a bunch of different categories inside of which we just automatically switched at work. I was working at the gym. I was gymming at the, <laughs> at the, at home. I was with my family or cooking or doing whatever. Suddenly everything's at home. So I remember just writing the book. It's like one moment I'm writing the book. The next moment I'm helping my, my son with algebra. The next moment I'm, you know, making lunch. The next moment I'm walking the dog, constantly shifting our you know, task switching. And then suddenly you're exhausted. It's like, feels like you didn't do anything, but you did. Your brain was constantly shifting. So, so I would say in terms of task switching, just be more aware of how often your, 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 your brain is shifting and switching when it actually shouldn't be. It should, doesn't have to be. And you can start getting a sense of that. It, um, and I think vulnerability we talked about. So, One of the things that really comes up there is compartmentalization, which mm-hmm. means you know, you're able to take things that aren't relevant and ignore them. Mm-hmm. And I've worked on this for quite a while. And a lot of people say, oh, if there's a cell phone on the table, like it sucks your attention. I, com- I compartmentalize my cell phone. Yeah. Anything coming in on that is someone else trying to take my attention. Yeah. It's, but you're so, you're so right. And it's a mindset shift as well. But you're yeah. absolutely right. And this is, this is exactly how the, the highest performers do it as well. I mean, in combat, um, when you are in combat and your buddy gets injured, all right. All you want to do, I mean, th- th- all the all the movies that have the person getting injured and then the buddy is sitting there like crying over like, oh, my God, that doesn't happen. OK, <laughs> because your primary job is to win the gunfight. And right. that is that you have to focus on that. So you so as as um, as visceral as that distraction might be, you have to focus on what what's the priority right now. And so so something as as um, ubiquitous as saying, let me just practice this with my cell phone is such a great way to train it and just see it. But I think you're right. I think the key is shift your mindset and say, hey, wait a second, this is not as important as what I'm in right now. Um, so let's invent a new kind of training. So turn all of your alerts on, on your cell phone, set it down mm-hmm. and then do stuff without looking at it. Yeah. And if you do that for a couple of days and just say, I'm going to look at it, I've got it scheduled on my calendar at 4.30, I'm going to look at it. Yeah. And you'll feel like you're losing your mind. But after two or three days of not losing your mind, you'll go, oh, wait a minute, maybe it wasn't as important as my nervous system thought it was. And yeah. that's. And I, I guarantee you'll, you'll feel more energy and you'll have been way more productive over that three days <laughs> because you will, you'll just have, you'll have been able to focus. Uh, this is awesome. Uh, one of our live audience from the Upgrade Collective, my mentorship group, just called it cell hormesis. <laughs> cell <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Deborah. That was good. <laughs> All right. So there's some some of the things that we don't talk about. Most people think, oh, increasing your IQ, which is something you can do and all. But looking at you know, how much energy is going into the world around you and mm-hmm. then figuring out how do you filter it out effectively and efficiently. And then how do you switch from one task to another? Is it, hard, is it easy or is it slow? Can you train that? And then how quickly can you absorb information um, that's relevant to you. So th- yeah. those are the the things you're looking for. But how would you, in an interview for a candidate for the SEALs, how would you possibly know these things? Well, I mean, in the, in the SEALs, you're lucky because it's not about interviews. It's about experience. I mean, we okay. throw guys into an experience. Um, I'm not sure if there are, I mean, I, I, I should, I'd have to really think about if there are interview questions you could ask that would that would tease out mental acuity. But I guarantee whatever those questions were, it was. It wouldn't be about the questions. <laughs> it would be at all. I always say attributes are found on the periphery of of an environment. They're not. They're not. They're not directly what you're looking at. And so, uh, and so when you're when you're 
looking to select people, uh, first thing you have to understand, okay, what attributes am I looking for? And then second thing is, okay, what can I do that actually helps tease out these specific attributes? And they're going to be on the periphery. So, um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe it's, um, you know, I, I'm just spitballing here, but, you know, something like, uh, something like situation awareness, it could be like, okay, you know, we're sitting here talking. Um, tell me how many exits there are in this room right now. And they're not allowed to look around. I mean, <laughs> did they notice that? You know, who knows? Um, task switching could be, I'm going to ask a question and then kind of right as the person starts to answer, maybe I'll ask another question. Hey, forget about that question. What about this one? You know, who knows? I, I think there's different ways you could, you could it, it actually becomes pretty fun to start thinking about that as long as you, you don't have to be Machiavellian about it, <laughs> but, um, but it's pretty fun to throw people. It, it's going to, it's going to be whatever helps throw some uncertainty and stress into that environment is where you're going to start to see attributes. Very interesting. And I'm going back to that visual training that I did. It's almost exactly that. You know, the therapist I was working with would say, all right, you know, look, look over there, right? Okay, now, you know, let's turn around. Tell me what, what you saw, how many whatevers. And I realized I had no freaking clue. Yeah. Right. And, and I thought, wow, how could I be blind to all this stuff? And, and that was what led me to grow my situational awareness because I would do that exercise of looking at something and then turning around and saying, well, what did I actually see? And eventually my perception of the world expanded. But that was really hard, like rewiring the brain hard kind of work. Yeah. yeah. This isn't in your book uh, around the attributes, but it, it feels to me like if you feed someone well and they're not exposed to neurotoxins, you know, they're, they're making enough energy uh, that that makes almost all of these attributes more powerful. Is that your experience? Oh, 100%. Um, and it's, it's an experience I've, I've been able to uh, affect more outside the Navy than inside the Navy. Because again, uh, when you go to Iraq or Afghanistan, even though the food's not bad, it's certainly not um, optimal in terms of health and nutrition. So, so you actually learn how to really run almost in a, um, in a depleted state. But I think, I think SEAL training itself teaches you that. Uh, I mean, you are, it's, a, it's an environment where you are taken down to zero, sub-zero, and asked, okay, what can you do right now? Um, and that's not a bad, I'm grateful for that experience. I don't know, not a bad experience for some people to, to, to figure out about themselves. It's actually, you can run in a depleted state. It's not, it's not going to be fun, but you can do it. Um, and it makes you even more appreciative about running in a uh, in a in an optimal state, and you have all the optimal health and nutrition. I mean, um, I mean, well, you and I talked about fasting, I mean, because you know I loved your book, and I, I do love fasting, and and this just idea. I feel so clear and focused and and sharp when I fast, you know, and it's because for all the reasons you write about, right? Um, and when I when I don't when I when I'm off alcohol for a while and I get enough sleep, I feel my productivity goes up and I just feel feel really very hyper performing. Um, and so I think it's it's without a doubt that these attributes, especially the mental acuity attributes, um, are are way more expressed when you are taking care of yourself and you're feeding yourself the right way and you're getting enough sleep and you're you're doing the right things. I would argue that a regular fasting practice makes you a better leader too, um, because yeah, you have I, more energy, more focus. Yeah, right? I, I unfortunately I didn't. I wasn't into fasting when I was in the Navy, so I could I can't tell you that from experience. But I will say, <laughs> since I got into fasting, um, I would you know again you're just clearer. You're you're noticing more things. You're uh, certainly with the decisiveness. I mean, um, you know, 
again, decisiveness, the ability to solve problems, but the speed with which you are able to solve problems is really what speaks to your levels of decisiveness. Because decision-making itself, that's a skill that can be taught. Uh, decisiveness involves that speed factor and anything. And we know just physiologically, that's what fasting does. It makes you sharper and, um, and more focused, which means you're making decisions faster and more effectively. I just thought about it. I hadn't considered it yet, but I've been fasting for 17 hours, um, but I didn't really notice. Yeah, I'm actually the same as you. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm at the 18 or 19 hour mark now. So, uh, so yeah, I, I feel great as, as usual. Yeah, and, and you can show up at, at an interview. There was a time in my life where if I didn't you know, eat right before I went on stage uh, back when I was in tech, I, like, I'm not going to be able to show up. And part of that was fear, and part of that was just not knowing that your brain can work and that your physiology is trained. So yeah. it feels you know, like... Fun, real quick, it's funny you should say that because um, I, I, I realized this uh, without knowing it. Um, when I was out in Iraq and Afghanistan, I would never eat before missions, ever. Um, I just didn't feel like... I, I, just, I didn't do it because I just wanted to be... I just felt better when I didn't, when I didn't eat. And, um, and then when I get back from a mission, I'd eat, but I didn't realize it until later until learning about fasting and, and reading your book and understanding, okay, we wait, that's why I didn't do it. That's why it felt so good, oh, but, man. but I wouldn't eat anything before a mission. And I just wait till I got back. I mean, who wants to carry an extra pound of food around when you have enough ammunition that you're carrying a pound of ammunition is kind of useful and it's yeah. the same amount of weight. And then all the energy that was going to go into digesting that food probably should go into achieving the mission. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, totally. But on the other hand, there were some guys and they were way better, you know, operators than I was and they would eat nice big meals before going. So <laughs> who knows? <laughs> so. Now, I, I want to ask you a hard question. And your, your sample set is 99.9% men. Mm. Do you have any data or info on how these attributes apply differently to women and men? Uh, the answer is no. Um, uh, but I would also I would also add to that answer. I don't think there is a difference. I think these are human attributes. Um, now we may I think I think after a period of study, there you may find that some attributes uh, tend to appear more predominantly in women than men. I mean, you could say empathy could be one of those uh, as an attribute. Um, women tend to be more empathetic than men, um, but uh, I really don't think that there's uh, there there'd be much of a uh, of a difference at all. I think it's it's very uh, human. There may be some some differences, and it isn't true for any one individual. But if you were to to draw you know a big statistical plot of likelihood of attributes landing somewhere, there's probably some differences. Um, I've heard from lots of women, they're saying, look, we're better at task switching on average. Mm, right? yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's actually a really good skill to have. <laughs> I wish I had more of that. Uh, so yeah, I would agree with that, by the way. Yeah. It doesn't mean that any one woman is going to be better or worse at task switching. It just means if you have, you know, 100,000 women, 100,000 men, and you knew nothing else about them, you could probably, yeah. you know, load the dice on that side. So it's, it's not an individual thing, but these are from my read of your book, they're very human attributes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if a leader is a, a man or a woman, they're doing the five things you talk about in leadership or four yeah. things or whichever one it was. Five things. Yeah. Five, five things, things for leadership. I, I mix up the numbers. So it's tough to keep track. <laughs> yes. And some of them are four, some of them are five, but it's a really neat way of structuring um, how to think about your attributes uh, and maybe how to strengthen them versus how to learn them, which you learn the skills and you strengthen your attributes. Yeah. So I, I really, the reason I like your book and I wanted to talk to you on the show is that 
the way you, you structure it so you can think about it in clumps and then dive deep on a clump that's really useful or in categories. Um, that's that's very well just, I guess, structured is the right word for it. So thanks for putting in all the, the time both to get the knowledge, but then to make it learnable in a book. Uh, so you, you did a, a fantastic job on that, Rich. Well, thank you, Dave. And I, and I, I really, for me, it's, a, it's, it's good to hear because I endeavored to write a book that wasn't another Navy SEAL book. Uh, there's a lot of Navy SEAL books out there, and a lot of them are great, and they're written by a lot of my friends, and so there's nothing wrong with those. But I wanted to do something different, and I really wanted to write a book that was about the reader, not about the SEALs, and, um, and really make it more human. And for me, this attributes content was a really w- good way for, for the, the reader to start asking themselves the question, okay, how do I show up? And, and I, I, I always relate ourselves to like automobiles. It's not because of the movie. I love the movie Cars. It's not just because my kids made me watch it a thousand times. It's because it's really true. I mean, we're all different. We're all automobiles, but we're different types, right? Some of us are SUVs. Some of us are Ferraris. Some of us are Jeeps, right? And there's no judgment because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. But it, 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 it behooves us to lift our hood and figure out what engine are we running with. And, and that helps us identify and, and, um, and understand our performance. Because we may, in fact, find out that we've, we're a Jeep that's been trying to run on a Ferrari track or a Ferrari trying to run on a Jeep track. And, and that understanding, even if we decide to be a Jeep running on a Ferrari track, that's good. That understanding will help us understand what we need to actually work on to be better in the context and the and the endeavor, whatever endeavor we're into. So, um, so I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you enjoying the book and I appreciate you having me on. So thank you. All right. One final bonus question. What kind of car are you? I'm a Jeep. (laughs) You're a Jeep. All right. And it's not only because I've, I have, I still own my high school Jeep, which I bought in 1989. I still drive it every day. Um, but I just think of it like I'm, I mean, I'm rugged. I don't, I, I, I look okay. I'm not really that sexy. I just do my thing, but I'm pretty rugged. I'm pretty tough. And, um, and I don't go very fast. I never have, <laughs> but, but I'll make it through the tough stuff if I need to. So, I, yeah, I love it. I, I think I must be a hovercraft. That's, uh, that's what I'm going to say. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rich, your book is called the attributes, 25 hidden drivers for optimal performance. Guys, I do a lot of work. My team does a lot of work on finding guests and topics that are really, really useful for you. And I promise you that if you pay attention to your attributes, instead of saying, oh, you know, I'm a bad person or I suck because I don't have strength in this one attribute, you could just say, fuck that. I'm going to find a friend or a partner or, you know, a teammate who's good at that. But the areas where I already have some strength, maybe you should double down on developing those attributes so you really have superpowers. I made that mistake earlier in my career uh, where I'd focus on the stuff I sucked at the most. And maybe you want to fill in those potholes, but really put all the wood behind the arrows where you already have strength and you'll find really big changes in your resilience and your ability to show up and then find friends who fill in the gaps. And that's just, it's so much less work that way. I hope this was a good episode for you. Um, You can find uh, Rich's work um, online. The paperback just came out. Congratulations, by the way, making it to paperback. Not all books get to do that. And what's the best URL for people to find you? Uh, Theattributes.com. I find everything there to include a free assessment tool that you can measure your grid attributes, your mental acuity attributes, and your drive attributes. Get a score on that. See where you see, see, get a snapshot on where you might stand. Nice. Thanks again. Upgrade Collective, thank you for being in the live audience, helping me with the questions. 
And guys, if you're interested in the Upgrade Collective, go to ourupgradecollective.com. Join my mentorship and membership group. We have calls every couple of weeks with me and a group of people who are like-minded, as well as access to the live uh, live audience for the podcast, which is a huge amount of fun. You should see the the chats that are happening during this. It's, it's fantastic. Ourupgradecollective.com. See you all later. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.